You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. This is Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week, it's a two-point conversion when the OBS scores an interview with MacArthur, don't say the G word, fellow, Matthew O'Coin. The composer, conductor, and author goes inside the huddle with Oliver to talk about his breakthrough opera Eurydice and to come to the defense of that dreadful ballet sequence in La Traviata. And then, should all seats be created equal in the Opera House? An article in The New Yorker argues about the inequality of how we watch performances. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Opera America apologizes for its first apology. And a certain Sandra is back on the market. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. And please send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. One day I'm going to make OBS hockey jerseys for everybody. You'd look so good in one, Oliver. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> They're too big. They're oversized. No, aren't they? no, they can be fitted. They can be okay. fitted. We can get it tailored for you. Okay. Yeah. I. The thing about men's clothing is that it's always the, when it fits well in the shoulders, it's always too tight in the tummy. So I need to. <laughs> maybe a hockey jersey is what I should have been wearing all along. So I think you'd look great in a hockey jersey, Matt Cummings. You would also look good in a hockey jersey. I mean, anything where where blocking and tackling is involved is basically you can't keep me away. Okay. How about? Checking, body checking, that's a I, hockey thing. I don't know what going, what's going on, You're just on, saying George. a bunch of words I'm just right saying now. a bunch of words and hoping that some of them are the correct Here's a word. word that I don't say often. It's the word NASCAR. I, I like to watch Formula One racing. NASCAR is its own sort of thing. But get this. In 2023, NASCAR is coming to Chicago with a race as part of the season, which is going to happen on Chicago's city streets. So is would you say that Formula One is to NASCAR as uh, opera is to, let's say, musical theater? I don't uh, know if that's a fair. As as opera is to like playing the harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Okay, so we were so fortunate after many months of chasing this interview to finally be able to speak to Matthew O'Quinn. Of course, the gigantic publicity push uh, for all of his great works, uh, his opera being presented at the Metropolitan, um, his new recording coming out with his The Orpheus Moment with uh, the Boston Modern Orchestra, I think it's called, and his own company, the American... Uh, modern opera company and then his atlantic article uh which coincided with the release of his book all of that happened months ago at this point but now he finally <laughs> has time <laughs> to talk to us obviously we're going to talk a lot about the opera eurydice i had sent this guy a pre-interview thinking that he had no time and like he just needed to know what i was going to ask him and just like knock it out but he ended up being so generous and so open and so just incredible 
talking about every subject I wanted to ask him about. And it ended up being one of my favorite conversations we've captured here for our audience at the OBS. So let's dive right into it. Um, I'm going to say that there'll be two clips. Uh, the first one we'll hear right away, which comes from the final dress of Eurydice at the Met with Aaron Morley, the Act Two aria, um, There Was a Roar. And then uh, at about, I think, the five-minute point of the interview or six-minute point, we will hear a soprano named Adelaide Bodecker with pianist Clinton Smith. And that aria will be set up quite well by Matthew himself. My guest today is the 2018 MacArthur Fellow, composer and conductor, and I just found out vocal coach from a lot of things, uh, and author, uh, Matthew O'Coin. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Thanks for having me, Oliver. So we are, what, like almost nine months after this gigantic inundation of Matthew O'Coin content <laughs> that happened in the fall. <laughs> we had your book come out, uh, The Impossible Art, uh, Adventures in Opera, uh, a recording uh, that you made with the um, the Boston, you have to remind me of the name of the ensemble, the, uh, the uh, Boston... Yeah. <laughs> Boston Modern Orchestra Project, better known as uh, BMOP. Boston Modern Orchestra Project and your own company, the American Modern Opera Company, you're calling Amok? Yes, we colloquially known as Amok. <laughs> okay. And uh, a little opera that you wrote that was premiered by a tiny company in New York called the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> uh, a lot of stuff uh, happening. And so we find, and we've been trying to talk to you about it. Uh, and we finally found a little island of time where you can spare. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I guess the big entry point for a lot of people will be for you, um, the opera, um, Eurydice. Uh, so congratulations on that, first of all. Um, thank you. And I mean, I was had a chance to actually listen to the radio broadcast because I work in radio, if you can't tell. And I was just struck by how... This is going to sound like I'm a jerk, but it's not, it was very listenable. You know, I could really just like engage with it. And I didn't feel too challenged by the music. And the cast was great. And Erin Morley, who was on the show before she started rehearsing, um, 
was talking about how wonderful it was. And yeah, I was just really looking forward to it and it delivered. And so um, congratulations on that. Um, I was really, really thrilled that uh, a work is out there uh, right now that in a way is like setting another marker on the timeline of opera. Uh, and I don't know mm-hmm. if you intended to do that, but we know that you know we have the Monteverdi and we have the Gluck, and any number of you know Orfeo-centric operas, and they always seem to designate you know the start of something or the end of something <laughs> or a pivot in opera. Uh, how do you feel about that characterization of, of of Orpheus as a subject matter for an opera? That's so interesting. I mean, it would be insane for a composer to kind of think, ah, oh, I'm gonna set a marker in <laughs> operatic history, you know, after I have breakfast this morning, I'm going to set a historical marker. Um, but <laughs> you're you're right that those pieces have been uh, kind of harbingers of, of, of a new era in a way. I mean, of course, the Monteverdi, uh, the Gluck was, uh, was kind of a, a radical simplification in certain ways. Um, I would also add a really bonkers piece that I love, um, which is uh, Harrison Burtwistle's The Mask of Orpheus, which is one of the most over-the-top, hyper-complex pieces from the 1980s. Is he British? Um, With a name like Burtwistle? Yeah, Burtwistle was British. He he passed away earlier this year, actually. Mm. Great, uh, great and beautifully curmudgeonly composer. Um, (laughs) And, you know... uh, I wanted to approach this myth because I think it's the most musical of stories. It, you know, it tells this spectacular story about what music can do and also about what uh, human beings can't do. <laughs> music can conquer death, but human beings can't because we we always, you know, find a way to to screw it up. Um, but uh, as I've said before, I, I kind of got depressed with the idea of of just telling the story from the same end of the camera. Um, and so it was a total breath of fresh air to find um, Sarah Rule's play, which uh, I thought not only inverted the myth, but also um, sort of derailed, or rather used the myth as a, as a pretense almost to tell a completely different story about a young woman's inner development. And it becomes this extraordinary uh Oedipal psychodrama <laughs> involving an encounter with your dead father and this, these questions of who you are after death. So um, in a way, uh, the myth was the gateway drug. I knew that it would kind of make opera fans go, oh yeah, I know that story. Um, but then I wanted people to feel partway through that, wait, we do not know this story. This is a different story. Um, so uh, I hope that doesn't ma- make me sound too conniving but um uh, it's 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 not it's not your grandmother's orpheus myth yeah and i mean obviously credit to sarah rule uh whose play this opera is based on and she wrote the libretto for uh the, the operatic version correct yes she did yeah. we we worked together quite closely on it. this uh i mean there were so many lyrical moments in this show and i guess that's what i'm getting at is that there is recognizable lyricism in this opera, um, which makes it very easy for somebody like me with a small brain uh, to engage with. Uh, (laughs) But the words also are so touching. There's this, I'm going to cry if I start thinking about this um, letter that 
Eurydice writes to Orpheus's new wife or future wife about like how to take care of him or like how to like you know brush his hair or something like that. And, like um, I don't know, I, I I don't remember the exact text, but I remember listening to it and thinking, oh my god, <laughs> that that is. Um, it was just so, so touching and beautiful. And uh, I don't know if you had special pleasure in writing music for, for those words because they they touch on their own. You know, I'll, I'll tell a quick story about that. That's the aria that ends the opera. Uh, at the first workshop of the opera um, at the Met in, in 2018, um, we only workshopped the first two acts out of three total because I hadn't finished the piece yet. Um, and we had the text for that aria, but it hadn't been set to music yet. Um, and uh, the soprano who was singing Eurydice in the workshop actually said, I don't think you should set that text to music because no one is going to be able to get through it without crying. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I thought, well, you're right, but isn't that every composer's dream? You know, a text that 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 has that kind of tidal overwhelming effect so of course i did end up setting it to music So another way audiences were introduced to you, uh, maybe those who don't listen uh, or don't watch PBS or didn't go to the HD broadcast, uh, was this article that came out uh, that you wrote, which is adapted from the book, The Impossible Art, um, Ad Adventures in Opera. And it was a deconstruction uh, or analysis, I should say, of the finale of The Marriage of Figaro which, you know, is something that is going to make me cry no matter if I see it at a college performance, if I see it like, you know, uh, in a, one of those terrible young artist programs, <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> or if I see it with a cast that I don't care about, uh, there is something about that finale that just, you know, gets to me every time. And if you are one of those people that also is highly affected by that music and by that moment in opera, 
um, and you haven't read this article, go find it. It uh, was published in The Atlantic or maybe get the book. Uh, and you really broke it down. Like you really said, okay, here's what you're hearing. This is what, you know, here is the music of pleading. Here is the music of forgiveness. Here is the music of, you know, compassion, you know. Um, yeah. So I, I was really glad that somebody was able to articulate that. And it makes me think that you really love opera and you really listen to <laughs> you listen to other composers. And it's just not just like this, you know, narcissistic pursuit of being, I'm an opera composer too, you know. There's no question there, is there? <laughs> no, well, I I appreciate hugely that uh, that it reached you. And I do think, you know, people who love uh, Figaro in particular, uh, it's a special <laughs> breed. You know, we really, we recognize each other. We seek each other out. Um, and, you know, that that last scene and actually other other scenes in the opera too have always been very important to me because of the perspective that Mozart is writing from. He's writing from within every character, I think, and also he's inhabiting some kind of spirit that's hovering near the ceiling, you know, like like uh, Puck or Ariel in The Tempest, who's kind of looking down on the mortals and kind of giggling at them a little bit and, and saying, oh, you guys are so stupid, you know, your, your problems are so trivial, you're so petty, you're so cruel but I love you anyway. You know, there's this sense of, you know, Wagner would call it redemption, <laughs> but forgiveness is maybe a better word. Um, and I think for me, that's one of the, the deepest things that opera as an art form can do is to give us these impossible perspectives on our own lives. Um, it, it's funny, uh, I think compassion has become a little bit suspect in, in, in the, the age we're living through, in not just in opera, but in, in fiction and movies and, 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 and things. There's the sense that uh, how dare you presume to know what's happening uh, in the inner life of someone else. It, it's seen as automatically a potential appropriation, which in some cases it can be, there's risk in it. But also for me, uh, if I weren't trying to understand what other people experience, you know, why would I bother being an artist? Why would I bother, especially working in opera, <laughs> where you have to you have to see things from from many perspectives? So um, this is a long way of saying that I think Mozart does that better than almost anybody, and it's what kind of you know hooked me on on the art form yeah. in the first place. Well, there are so many moments that I could think of in Mozart operas especially, but in all and many different operas that are just moments that make me stop and listen. I mean, even mm -hmm. in act two of uh, Figaro, that moment when the count basically tells uh, the Contessa, you know, you're a liar, you know, and you just, mm -hmm. it's like, it's horrifying. And you just, I don't know, depending on how it's played on the stage, like, you know, you could have a countess on the floor weeping or whatever, or she could be like, really defiant but it's in the music there's like this something where he crossed the line he says something so brutal to her and um mm -hmm. i don't know what it is but whenever i hear it i get i get really emotional you know um yeah that and, is a brutal moment yeah and also the, the moment when he says non soniente, and then it, mm. the music stops for a second yeah. and there's kind of this sense of oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a joke this is for real yeah 
But uh, at any rate, I, I also heard you talk about uh, Rigoletto, which you conducted at uh, Los Angeles recently, mm-hmm. two years a few ago? years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I'm I'm prepping to conduct a Traviata in in Houston now, so I'm I'm really oh. in that uh, yeah you're I'm deep in, you're inside in Verdi, that yeah. middle Verdi place. Yeah, yeah. And I would tell people to seek out um, the podcast you did for LA Opera on. Uh, well, you talk about the whole opera, but you also talk about Cortigiani and how you know Verdi is really breaking form with what was expected in the Bel Canto period by, you know, uh, just with this aria, like three different times trying something. And you think it's going to go, oh, okay, now we're going to get a capoletta here. But instead, it goes the opposite. Like we get this, you know, Mm -hmm. Cantilena moment at the end because he's desperate, you know. And you also talked about how in Caronome even, like Verdi, you know, gives you this moment of respite musically, but not really because just as it's concluding, you get uh, the courtiers coming in about to kidnap her. So it's like, oh. yeah. yeah. So I, it makes me want to just like hear you talk about all of these things. And I guess the point is, is to go buy the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the, 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 the ultimate tagline is everyone should, should buy the book. No, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm not the first person to, to point out how Cortigiani is, yeah. is, is a totally revolutionary aria. Yeah. But the thing that blows my mind about it is that Rigoletto is actually saying uh, what's happening at a structural level. You know, he's saying, oh my God, this isn't working. I have to try something else. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Verdi the composer is thinking, this isn't working. I have to try something else, yeah. you know? Up till then, I mean, with a few small exceptions, in that Italian tradition, an aria expresses, or, you know, a section of an aria, uh, a cabaletta or whatever, expresses a fixed state of mind. You know, mm-hmm. I am defiant, or I am sad, or yeah. I am hopelessly in love, or whatever. Uh, and normally, of course, we start with a cantabile section, and then it kind of bursts into a cabaletta. Um, and Cortigiani goes in reverse. Mm-hmm. It starts with this, it's not a cabaletta, but it's a it's a very yeah. uh, up-tempo, intense um, it's a it's a roller coaster at the beginning, and you know I've never yeah. heard anybody talk about it, but I wonder if you know you, you worked with Mut- did you work on Muti with Muti on this uh, on Rigoletto at all, or who did you did you coach that with anybody or mentor or assist anybody that was famous? I know you've worked with a lot of famous people. <laughs> I didn't work on this piece specifically okay. with 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 Muti when I was studying with him in Chicago. Um, Though, you know, he did do Macbeth and, yeah. and the Requiem and some other Verdi. Well, there's like those um, chords that happened right at the beginning of Hortigiani that we know that just behind the door, Gilda is being raped. So I, I, I feel like we don't talk about that enough. Like it's it's a rape and it's a it's so much violence happening just beyond, you know, beyond what, what the audience can see. But I feel like Verdi put it in the score right there. Yeah, I think, I mean, Rigoletto is, is he's on a kind of leash. He's mm-hmm. like straining against a leash is what mm-hmm. it feels like to me at the beginning. Or, you know, uh, he's, he's hitting a wall again and again. It's a, it's a kind of futile motion. Um, and that to me is what's extraordinary is that kind of Verdi, Verdi uh, builds the futility of it into the music so that he then has to try another tack. Um, and he becomes more and more eloquent and, and more and more 
uh, he speaks more and more beautifully. Um, it still doesn't work, but it's it's an extraordinary kind of progression. Well, now that I've got you here and you just revealed that you're working on Traviata, can you please mm. explain to me this ballet that happens uh, at the beginning of the um, gambling scene? Uh, like the little... Oh, I love that section. <laughs> what is... Why is that there? What, what are we supposed to get out of oh, it? Oh, to me, that's... To me, that's that's one of the great masterstrokes of the piece. Um, act two of Traviata is one of my favorite operatic acts because mm -hmm. it, it traces this huge trajectory from, you know, Alfredo and Violetta being happy in their mm -hmm. country home to, you know, to everything falling apart. Um, but if you think about how intense her scene with Germont is, mm -hmm. and then how intense the confrontation at the party is. Mm -hmm. I think what Verdi recognized was, we need a palate cleanser. We cannot just careen from the intensity of the Germont scene directly into that. So I think what he wanted to do with the, with the gypsy ballet and then the, the, the matadors ballet. <laughs> is that he wanted to lull us into a false sense of security for a second. And for me, it really works, especially because there are two ballets, you know, uh, and I actually think the music is, 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 is pitch perfect, you know, as far as setting the tone. So, you know, if it were, if it were 15 minutes long, it would be horrible and boring, but it's like five minutes long. And uh, for me anyway, uh, I think if, if the performers play it right, um, when Alfredo bursts in, we almost should have forgotten what was about to happen. We should be kind of lulled into a sense of, oh, I'm just watching a silly 19th century party <laughs> scene, you know? So for me, I, I think Verdi often has a really great instinct for when to drop in a palate cleanser. And that's that's an example. Well, we but you're not a fan? I just, <laughs> I, I've never seen it pulled off in a way that's committed. I mean, I guess that Willie Decker production... Uh, that production when I first saw it, was, I was very, very touched by it. Um, mm. But uh, no, I've yet to watch that scene and feel like, oh, okay, that worked this time, you know? So I was like, please be be done with this. But it's okay, we'll move on. <laughs> no, no, I mean, look, I get it. We all we all want to spend more time with the characters we, yeah. we, we care about. But I would just add that I think it's also important in Traviata to get a sense of the kind of shallow social world that Violetta moves in. <laughs> you know, that's why finding Alfredo uh, means so much to her because she's stuck with these people who have dress up parties all the time okay. and who are, oh, you know, who are, all right. you know. Awesome. Uh, yes. Yeah. I like that answer. Um, so we did already touch on the fact that you were an artist in residence at LA Opera. And it's my understanding that you worked with the young artists while you were there. And you also did some coaching at Caramore, and you were on the music staff of the Metropolitan Opera, and you were here in Chicago at Lyric Opera, is my understanding. So mm -hmm. you've had a lot of experience working with singers, especially singers who are still developing their careers and their, maybe even their techniques. Um, have mm -hmm. you learned anything about composing for the voice from young artists? Yeah, no, a huge amount, um, especially in my first few years, you know, in college and, and just after working as a coach and a, and a pianist and an assistant conductor in, in, in various places, um, you know, singing is such a physical act uh, and it's such a delicate balance and it asks so much of the singer 
that I really think every composer who wants to write operas should have to work as a as a vocal coach or a, a pianist or you know not everyone plays the piano but they ha- they should work with singers in a kind of uh, intimate performance based way um because what it does is it teaches you sympathy for what <laughs> for what people uh are trying to do and how hard it is um and and what's possible i think you know you you learn um you learn what it feels like for someone to run out of breath because tempo is too slow. You you, you learn uh, what it feels like when, uh, you know, a poor tenor is stuck singing a note that's right in their passaggio and, and they have to sit on it for five minutes and they're in agony, you know. And so these are things that you then avoid <laughs> doing as a composer unless you are looking for a super specific um, agonized effect, which I think is a special sauce that should not be, you know, overused. Um, so yes, uh, the, the short answer is yes. I learned a huge amount f- from, from working with, with young artists in all these places. And, you know, in, in LA, the cool thing was I was in residence there for four seasons. Um, so I was able to, to really get to know, uh, the, the singers who were part of the company, you know, to uh, every year we did a little, recital tour uh, around Los Angeles. We performed in, in practically every section of the city. Um, and we would sometimes do coachings for whatever else they were working on. Um, so yeah, for me, it's an essential aspect of, of, of being a composer, just keeping a, a, a direct contact uh, with, with the people you're writing for. And how has uh, that work and that understanding of the voice uh, influenced the sort of projects you are doing with your company, uh, American Modern Opera Company. And we should also mm-hmm. just talk about what it is and what has happened so far and what, what plans to happen with that. So the American Modern Opera Company, or AMOC, as we as we call it, A-M-O-C, uh, is a collective of singers and instrumentalists and dancers uh, and uh, a director, Zach Winokur, uh, and uh, a composer, uh, me. Mm. And uh, Zach and I co-founded the company uh, about five years ago um, in order to give artists more agency in developing the projects that they really want to be working on. You know, we, it, it's something that's so obvious because we're we're used to it, but let's just think for a second about in a typical opera company, who are the people who work there year in and year out? Well, you know, the administration and uh, the orchestra and the chorus and maybe a music director. But the singers <laughs> and the directors and the conductors come and go. They change with every production. And singers in particular have very little agency about who they work with. You know, let's say two singers have amazing uh, artistic chemistry. They really can't do much um, except for, you know, tell their agents to book them for something four years in the future. They can't do much to keep working with those people. And so what Zach and I wanted to do with Amok was to say, all right, uh, let's create a company that's really a company (laughs) where the thing that is stable is the artists themselves. And, and let's find artists that really want to work 
together. Um, and let's see what happens. Um, and the way it works is we gather uh, every summer uh, in Vermont, where both Zach and I uh, have houses, uh, and we work on uh, many projects, which we then perform during the year. Um, and most recently, Amuk was the curator of the Ojai Festival in Ojai, California, which is an amazing um, four-day-long epic like the Burning Man or the Coachella <laughs> of, of contemporary classical music. Um, and we curated that festival and also the artists of Amok basically performed the entire festival. I mean, we had to do about 19 different programs in four days. Um, so that's the most recent thing Amok has done. And now I think we're all taking a, <laughs> a long breather and we're going to reconvene in August and figure out what's what's next for the company. So it's sort of like a, a commedia troupe in a way, except... Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so... The... Rolling into the village square with a, in, <laughs> exactly. in a wagon. Yeah. <laughs> but you were talking about giving the artists uh, agency. Uh, does it mean that they also can the singers uh, can choose repertoire that is not composed by Matthew O'Coin? <laughs> or is it always going to be your music? Sorry, Oliver, yeah. could you repeat that? Yeah, My I, connection I, froze. I know it'll, yeah. it'll be fine on the recording right, I'm right. making. So you're describing um, the ensemble as giving the artist's agency, and especially the singer's agency. I'm curious to know, can they pick their repertoire uh, or is it always going to be uh, a Matthew O'Coin joint? Oh no, it's not always, it's not always my music. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the singers can do more than pick their repertoire. They can devise whole projects. Um, for example, uh, just this past week, um, Amok debuted a, a staging of uh, Messian's song cycle, Arawi, um, featuring Julia Bullock, one of our oh my gosh. company's singers. Um, <laughs> and Julia and Zach had been wanting to uh, stage Arawi since they were in school together like nine years ago. So um, a lot of the productions that Amuk uh, does are, are pieces that the singers uh, particularly want to sing. The same goes for um, our production of Henze's opera, um, El Cimarron, uh, featuring Devon Tynes. Um, so amongst singers are Devon, Julia, Anthony Rothcastanzo, and Paul Appleby. Um, mm. And all four of them are, I, you know... I love all four of them so much. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and all four of them are, are just like wellsprings of ideas. And I should say, you know, we're talking about the singers because this is an opera podcast, but the dancers and instrumentalists in the company also have agency. That's the point is it's a company of people who who all generate ideas and 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 perform in each other's projects. Nice. Well, that's American Modern Opera Company which has uh well, is featured on the recording of your vocal works the Orphic Moment and uh, there's mm -hmm. other things on this recording, but uh we'll we'll put all the the links uh, on the site, but um, is there anything else you'd like to say about what Amok is doing or what Amok should, we should be paying attention to? I'm just taking a break right now. Well, you know, Ojai took all of our energy, so yeah. we're, we're going to reconvene soon. But, you know, I would just say for, for singers or, or performers of any kind who are listening, you know, it's been a real uh, blessing 
and a, a kind of uh, a safe haven to have uh, my own ensemble. You know, I love working with companies uh, around the world. You know, I love doing large scale opera and I, I will hopefully do that forever. But as we all know, you know, this this industry can feel a little bit anonymous. It can feel a little bit lonely. You're traveling around, you're doing this, you're doing that. So kind of creating a space where you have your artistic family uh, and where you can actually build uh, relationships over time uh, has been really great. And I would strongly recommend it, especially because we need new models. We need companies that are built on new models um, because I don't see anybody building a new, you know, Wiener Staatsoper anywhere. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we need to build stuff that looks completely different. And it should always include Julia Bullock. Oh, yes, if obviously. Possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matthew O'Coin, uh, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Car. Thanks for having me, Oliver. It's a pleasure. I don't know if I'm convinced about that ballet sequence in La Traviata, but, you know, at least someone's out there making a case for it. <laughs> Matt is, you know, he is a, don't say the G word, MacArthur fellow. And so maybe we should listen to our Gs, you know. Here's something else which I, I am trying to understand right now. It's a sports thing. And then we're going to get to Chalk Talk in a second. Is that, so here in Chicago, Soldier Field, of course, is where the Chicago Bears play. The team is threatening to move to the suburbs. The city is trying to keep them downtown at Soldier Field and so has now suggested that a dome be placed on top of Soldier Field so that it can be used for more months of the year, like not basically wintertime, uh, with a whole bunch of extra amenities. And if you look at the renderings, like some architect already messed up Soldier Field when they sort of created this extended seating. And now this when it became dome, guaranteed rate or something like that, then it changed well, that its name. Was for the White Sox, yeah. Oh, okay. But this dome on Soldier Field, it's going to expand the capacity. It's going to add more men's urinals. And uh, it's going to quadruple the amount of concession stand areas. <laughs> okay, let's, to be clear, Chicago uh, Cubs, uh, Bears, <laughs> sorry, uh, Perform. The grown-up ones. <laughs> <laughs> they perform. They play uh, basically just south of the downtown area of Chicago along the lake. Um, they are considering moving to a suburb, Arlington Heights. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot is trying to get them to stay by offering this roof to the cost if it's not clear who will be paying for this roof. But did I hear it's two billion? There'll be two billion dollars to build. It, the roof? it could be as much as two billion dollars. I'll That's tell quite you, it'd an be expensive hat. It. Yeah. it would. It would be um, George J. Taxpayer. Okay. Is the person who would be I paying know. for Sounds this? Sounds a lot like so. George J. Cedarquist. That's that would be me. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Last week, The New Yorker republished an article by staff writer Janet Malcolm, who died in 2021, about her memories of attending the old. Metropolitan Opera with her father. Specifically, the article talks about where the pair sat in the house up in the third or possibly fourth level. She goes on to say that the performing arts is an inequitable medium of interacting with this art form. If you read a poem, no matter how wealthy or poor you are, we're all reading the poem in basically the same way. But when we go to the performing arts, of course, where we sit is based largely on how much we can afford to pay. Of course, sports is exactly the same way. The seats right behind home plate or against the glass for hockey are more expensive than the nosebleeds. 
is there a better way to actually do this or does a better way need to be created? Matt, uh, in the article, Janet talks about how she loathed the rich people sitting right at the front of the main floor. Is that the best place to sit in your opinion? Yeah, I would actually say that the arts are in this case, one of the, this is one of the rare times that the arts are more equitable than sports, because if you're like trying to follow a hockey game from the nosebleeds, like good luck seeing where that puck is from a thousand feet up. But I actually think that you, there is such a thing as sitting too close to the stage of the opera house, because um, there's something about the way that the sound like all blooms and comes together in the acoustic. And usually that doesn't happen in the first couple rows. And if anything, the sound is often better like up at the top of the of the galleries where you might not be able to see the facial expressions. But like which of those things is really more important when you're talking about an opera singer and like what they are, how they're trying to express what's going on in in the moment. I know I've sat everywhere in the house um, and yeah, in Chicago, especially there are some primo seats for visuals that are awful for the auditory experience where Mm. the sound isn't blended. You're getting a lot of the orchestra and the singer's voice is just kind of going over your head, but you can see the stage, you can see, you know, facial expressions, you could see spit flying and there's something exciting about Mm. that. Uh, I just want to say that I do think it can be equitable if you learn to circumnavigate the hierarchy like I did when before I used to get free tickets for all my uh, publicity that I do. Um, I used to stand outside of Lyric Opera and just try to look poor and adorable. Uh, And it worked through most of my 20s. I mean, you still have one of those things. (laughs) Uh, It worked. And it's usually these uh, people who subscribe who the wife or the husband uh, doesn't feel like it that night or is quote unquote sick. And the poor (laughs) spouse is there like holding two tickets, trying to sell the second ticket. But, you know, starting in the early aughts, um, there was no longer such thing as a sold out house. So people could still buy tickets. So more, more often than not, whoever was out there selling tickets was trying to discount the ticket severely just to get some kind of, um, compensation uh if and, if and if you wait long enough and if you look cute enough you actually get in for free you can as get long by as you... on the pleasure of your company alone <laughs> exactly <laughs> oliver let's say money is no object so where do you like to sit at say lyric like where's I've, your okay i lied i've never sat in the boxes at lyric opera chicago yeah. i assume those are the best seats because they Why they're that? right well because they're right uh above the overhang mm-hmm. uh that is like the dead zone <laughs> if you're sitting on the main floor which is especially bad at lyric but really is yeah. an issue at most houses that have a yeah. big old balcony yeah but uh, also are you know just high enough where you can sort of look down at the stage but you're not looking at the tops of people's heads you know how about you matt you've got all the money in the world where do you sit in the opera house? i mean that that that's why my favorite seat that i've ever sat in, in lyric is like at the very front of the dress circle so that you're above the so you're basically right on the ceiling of those boxes in front yeah. of the overhang from the upper balcony and you can kind of see the whole stage at once and it's close enough to get some kind of definition but but also you're far away enough that you can see the whole thing in one glance if you want to the when, dress circle at lyric yeah. is the, the third floor essentially like main floor the boxes yes. and then the third the floor. lower balcony the front of the yeah. lower balcony yes why is it called the dress circle? 
because you better be dressed to go there. I guess you better. <laughs> you better it's, be wearing a circle of you, some you must sort. Be, you must be circular. It's true. Whatever you do, do not sit under the overhang. The the, the, the sound is... Avoid is, at all costs. You really but should. There is one row of seats at Lyric Opera Chicago, which uh, divides the two main seating sections, like a large... Uh, yeah. leg room it's like sitting at uh over like where you have to <laughs> it's like being emergency the exit yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so you have leg room for days which is kind of nice i'm a i'm a leg crosser and like Are when you? You, yeah, yeah and when you cross your legs in a regular aisle um yeah your knee or your foot ends up pushing up against a person's seat and i don't mind that but usually the person in front of me minds it so Malcolm in the article also makes the point, right, that like being close is not necessarily better. She just wanted to hate those people because they were rich, not because they were had like quote. That's something we can all get on board. We can all get on board that, right? Like clearly, the the men in HD gets us very very close, and clearly that is not as satisfying. I would say is not is being there, you know, live and. What if there was some kind of, you know, revolution? Uh, like happening at the opera, and all the nosebleed people revolted against the main floor people, and I was caught in the middle because, like, no, I was just looking cute today. That's why I'm here. <laughs> well, I have sort of wondered about that sometimes. Like, what would happen if you took a house, say, on the scale of Lyric, which is just shy of thirty five hundred seats, and you made the whole thing general admission? Like, how how would that work? Would people show up? hours in advance i think in a lot of ways you're not necessarily paying for the the seats on the main floor as much as you're paying for the rights to socialize on the main floor right when right. you're when you're paying the top dollar exactly yeah let us know where you like to sit at the opera house and hey let us know where you like to sit at sports events as well for me for hockey love sitting right against the glass i'm also that guy who really wants to sit in the front row of the opera house as well let us know where you like to sit Operaboxcore gmail.com. We're going to let you know right now about the two minute drill. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. On July 18th, Opera America issued a response to emails leaked from its professional development listserv. In their apology, the industry service organization said, We will use this incident as an opportunity to improve our service. We will circulate new community guidelines to all listserv users in the coming weeks. We will not tolerate hateful or hurtful discourse in these spaces. We are committed to maintaining a forum for healthy conversation where differences of opinion can be addressed without breaching trust. Then, on July 22nd, Opera America issued a second apology for their weak sauce first apology. We apologize. Language used last weekend by participants on one of our listservs and Opera America platform was hurtful, disrespectful, and plainly transphobic. In our statement of response, we did not effectively call it Opera what it is. We're truly sorry. In the clearest of terms, we condemn any language or opinion that questions the dignity, identity, or human value of anyone in our field. Several female employees at the Bayreuth Festival, including festival director Katharina Wagner, have come forward with allegations of sexual assault just days before the opening of their season. Unrelated to the sexual assaults, accusations have also surfaced against former music director and conductor Christian Tielemann for disrespectful remarks towards female musicians. 
Russian baritone Vadim Cheldiev has been sentenced to 10 years in prison after his alleged organization of a protest against early COVID restrictions in 2020. Cheldiev was found guilty on charges including incitement to, quote, extremist activity, participation in mass riots, and hitting a police officer. Congratulations to the recipients of the 2023 Sphinx Organization Medals of Excellence, which are given to Black and Latinx classical music artists. Soprano Andy Marie Moore, composer Joel Thompson, and cellist Thomas Mesa each receive a $50,000 career grant and will be part of Sphinx's 25th anniversary season. Sandra Radvanovsky has announced her divorce from Duncan Lear on social media. This is a very difficult time, but I am feeling happy and ready for the next chapter of my life, as well as opening night at the Metropolitan Opera, said Radvanovsky about her upcoming performances in Karabini's Medea. In gay sports news, Monet Exchange competed as an operatic bass baritone in the recent talent competition of RuPaul's Drag Race. The returning contestant from Season 10 went on to win All-Star Season 4 and is currently competing in the All-Winners All-Star Season 7. No spoilers. In trade news, Minnesota Opera has announced two appointments to their music staff. Mario Antonio Mara as head of music and Celeste Marie Johnson as principal coach and chorus director. Mara, a pianist and conductor, served on the music staff at Oper Frankfurt, San Francisco Opera, and Lyric Opera of Chicago, where he was also a member of the Ryan Opera Center. Johnson, a choral pianist, was a young artist with Opera Saratoga of the OBS Summer League and has previously been engaged with Songfest and the Tanglewood Institute, both begin in their new roles next month. After the position having been vacant for years, Daniel Yinga has been appointed general manager of the Romanian National Opera. The general manager position was blocked for some time by lawsuits in court after the former general director, Catalin Ionescu, was suspended from office and investigated for embezzlement of public funds. The Austrian-Iranian conductor Ali Rabari announced that he's been appointed by Valery Gergev as Marinsky Theater's principal guest conductor, becoming one of the first international artists to perform in Russia since the war in Ukraine began. I go to Russia with pleasure and the greatest respect to Valery Gergev, and I hope that others will follow, said Rabari. Gergev deserves great respect. If I compare him to politicians, Gergev was already Gergev, one of the greatest artists of our time, long before many of the political leaders of today even appeared on the scene. Oh, he's the original asshat. Sam Linden is the new executive director of Beth Morrison Projects. Linden comes from the nonprofit consulting firm TDC and is joining the organization alongside new board members. Bass, Morris Robinson, composers Kamala Sankaram, and Gregory Spears. On the disabled list, Teatro Real de Madrid has announced a cast change for its production of Rufus Wainwright's Hadrian. Alexandra Urquiola will step in for Enoa Arteta as Plotina. Teatro San Carlo has announced that Claudia Pavone will go on in La Traviata for Pretty Yende, who has the flu. Yende is set to return to the production for performances later this month. Exit stage right, Hungarian conductor Stefan Scholtes died on Friday night after collapsing during a performance of Strauss's Die Schweigsame Frau at the Bayerische Staatsoper. Scholtes conducted at major opera houses across Europe over the past four decades and previously was music director at the State Theatre of Brunswick and the Flemish Opera. And on this day, July 25th in 1710, it was the first performance of Giovanni Bononcini's Tigrane Re d'Armenia in Vienna. In 1798, Luigi Cherubini's L'Hotellerie Portugaise premiered in Paris. In 1898, 
Italian soprano Maria Zamboni was born born in Peschiera. She created the role of Liu in Turandot. In 1909, Italian conductor Gianandrea Gavazzeni was born in Bergamo. In 1930, Maureen Forster, the Canadian contralto, was born in Montreal and won for Weston. In 1976, it was the first performance of Einstein on the Beach, an opera by Philip Glass at the Avignon Festival. Did Maria Zamboni also invent the Zamboni? That's your two-minute drill. It's Monet Exchange. We just heard a little bit of Monet Exchange, whose non-drag name is Kevin Burton, uh, performing a bit of Bellini for you all. Um, That's a weird sort of mashup of the aria, but I assume that it was cut for length because those drag (laughs) race audiences, (laughs) they can't be expected to listen to those long, long Bellini lines. (laughs) If no one made a joke about um, slinging Bellini at drag brunch, then... Oh, God. People didn't know their source material well enough. Exactly. But they all knew that it was from Sonambula, right? That was, yeah, exactly. That was a very serviceable, um, you know, rendition of the aria. It's it's in tune, a nice tone. Um, I I have to say, I am not a drag race person. I don't watch, I'm not, I don't get into drag culture at all. And it makes me a certain type of gay. I am a very opera gay. So here's like the one Venn diagram moment for me. (laughs) But I don't think that there's a lot of people in that intersection. So, um, well, congratulations at any rate. I mean, of the millennials, there certainly are. Last week on the show, we were dealing with very recent news about Opera America posts on this listserv becoming public through a leak. And now Opera America has apologized not once, but but twice about those. First of all, I didn't know list serves still existed. I, I thought I, I didn't realize that. I thought was everyone still... had moved over to Slack by now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is, this is a complex story. It's sort of an awful story for me to think that Opera America, which is an organization of which I'm a member and which I support, to think that that organization, which has very specifically lifted up the opera as one and has made as one one of the you know top 20 regulated performed pieces of repertoire in this country to now have these examples of anti-trans behavior is just so <laughs> disappointing would be an understatement i mean i won't i won't blame opera america specifically i will just say that it shows that the people who we are expecting to be our leaders in this industry are, in fact, not as progressive as the people that they are trying to serve. So um, the first statement didn't explicitly call out what was wrong with uh, the activity on that listserv, and it took 
a lot of people saying you didn't even mention that it was transphobic or racist or whatever you know it was a uh, lot of for we them to come see up. you yes. we hear you <laughs> yeah. tell us how to be better exactly there's gonna be like they're, they're gonna have like listening sessions and yeah. you know they're gonna go to rehab or something i don't know <laughs> they, they can hang out there with renee papa <laughs> <laughs> listening sessions indeed I, yeah i mean this is sort of a, a textbook way of like how not to deal with a huge problem right is you want to get to the heart of it right away and you want to do the absolute most you can possibly do right out of the gate and, and clearly they did not do that which is why they yeah. were apologizing yeah. yet again and as you say oliver to, to think that those thoughts not just as that those you know well, they they distance them. They distance themselves pretty fast from whoever Fair. that that one woman was who who wrote the really explicitly transphobic uh, okay. comments. But she's like but, the outlier. I but like, the, a... it's part and parcel of like a general lack of respect, I think, for for young artists and young people. It is. It is. And the note to those people is not to you can't say don't have those thoughts, right? I mean, like we have terrible thoughts all the time the problem is do not act on them and do not put them out there in writing in a in a what you think is a private way because god knows that the internet is forever and anything that is written down can become public so is die schweigsame frau cursed now does it have the new did laforto da destino like give up its, it might it's i mean spot. it's still only it's still only 50 percent as many conductors who have collapsed trying to conduct tristan and isolde so we've we've got some ground to cover there <laughs> i'm just surprised that um rufus wainwright's opera hadrian is being done again. Hey, we just talked about that in our What's the Gayest Yeah, opera. I think that they programmed it because of our stellar coverage yeah. oh, of well, how gay I, it is. I, I stand corrected. I'd, I'd love to see it. I love the Emperor Hadrian. I love the wall that he had built between Scotland and England. Do you love Sandra Ovanovsky? Are you interested in maybe... I, I'm a happily married man, so mm. I'm not going to take that yeah. bait, Oliver. Nice try. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Congrats for her for... We love a new chapter. We love a fresh start. Well, if yeah. people are unhappy, then they should get divorced and they should they should move on. Uh, but she's ready for the next chapter of her life, which includes opening night at the Met. So, I I mean, I'm, I'm a fan and I don't want to like delve into her personal life, but she's the person who put this out there. Uh, is it because she wants to be, well, you know, there was a time when Maria Callas was the most famous opera singer in the world and everybody was all up in her business. And do we not have that right now? Do we need a singer who like has business to be up in, you know? So we're curious about who she, you know. Which... Are you suggesting that she needs to start a relationship with a Greek shipping magnate? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't know uh, if that would get headlines in the same way as this day and age. That's the only way to become a prima donna assoluta is to be married at least twice and, um, what is another uh, and to sing Turandot, right? So that's, that's the only thing that's missing now, right? For her problems at Bayreuth. That is, it's just a place where there's just drama all the time, you know, from when it was founded to who founded it to years later with the guy with the swastika tattoo who was like, "Oh, I had oh, no yeah, idea. Nikita. I had no idea that that, that was this... a, that's a throwback." Yeah, exactly. This is what's surprising, right? Is is it's not surprising that there is sexual harassment. That there's sexual harassment and assault in opera. That there's sexual assault in opera in Germany. None of these things are surprising. Th these articles from Opera Wire and Deutsche Welle made a big deal that 
Katerina Wagner, the festival, even the festival director had been sexually assaulted. And it was like, why, why is that surprising? Is it because she's in a position of power? And are we, are we meant to assume that women in positions of power can't be sexually assaulted? I'm, I'm, I, just, I didn't understand the logic behind that. I mean, you would think that that the the person who is in charge, who is herself, you know, inherited the position of director as the great-granddaughter of Richard Wagner is, like, above the, uh, the, the petty plays of men across this stage. But uh, no, some things are more ingrained than that, even. And uh, one of them is sexism. Yeah, no one is immune. I will I will tell you this, is that because Bayreuth is funded by uh, partially by the state of Bavaria, and I think the federal government as well, that they will get to the bottom of that and look out. When they take the sponge to the glass on finding those people, mm, that is not going to be pretty. Nor should it be. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is how we're going to wrap up the show as always, starting with Oliver Camacho. Well, in the absence of Wesson, who is moving house right now, good luck to you, Wesson, that's the worst. Uh, I wanted to uh, highlight uh, a radio piece that came out and has a beautiful uh, web article to accompany it. Uh, NPR did a profile of uh, da- fin- fin- Finnish? Danish? Finnish. Finnish. Uh, Finnish composer Kaya Saryaho. And um, my favorite part is looking at her super cool Paris apartment with books everywhere and one of those spiral staircases. Uh, Of course she does. (laughs) I stand wall-to-wall bookcases. Matt Cummings. Uh, Zachary Wolf has a write-up in the New York Times about that we'll uh, share in our show notes that's about kind of the, the history of the Mostly Mozart Festival, which is now largely defunct and has been rolled into other summer festivals uh, of music in New York. Uh, and at the end of this piece, he hits on the fact that a lot of the current concerts at Alice Tully Hall this summer are, wait for it, pay what you can. So has the New York Times scooped us again with coming up with the best way to make classical music more accessible to all, George? The I old leave it up to you. The lady beats us again. But that is a good call. Uh, I will organize a consortium of open letter writers to demand (laughs) pay what you can admission and everything will get solved. Nothing says summer to me like free outdoor Shakespeare. The kids and I went to see a production of Midsummer Night's Dream uh, over the weekend outdoors here. So wherever you are and however you are enjoying your summer, try and find some free outdoor Shakespeare. There is nothing like it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us that hot take, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Matthew O'Coin, and your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera and apologize at the same time. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with the creative team behind the world premiere of Holy Ground at Glimmerglass. 
Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Zingarelle and Matadori. Join us.